0: Well, I've had a tremendous time with you, and uh, of course, Dr. Louder and Chuck and the whole group here this week. Kind of excited about next week, but yet kind of wish I could stick around and watch Dr. Louder preach four or five times straight in a row. <laughs> I want to share with you one last time this morning, and we have a website. And I don't—I packed up all my stuff because we got to get out of here. But uh, if you have a card, one of these cards, our website's on there and really it's easy to uh, remember it, JeremiahBullock.com. We have a newsletter on there if you're interested in what's going on in our life and where we're going and what we're studying and all of that. Really want to keep that thing message oriented. And we have a newsletter that I also like to uh, keep it message oriented. It's not beg for money oriented. There's a place for that. Uh, you know, or prayer, that kind of thing. There is some family update, but really that whole deal is about being message-oriented. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, you can get on our newsletter and sign up for that. want to have you, if you'd be willing, to open your Bibles up to the book of Revelation, chapter 1. Go, go turn off your car alarm, man. All kinds of big car theft stuff here in Sebring. Keep that alarm on there. So Revelation, chapter 1, verse 6. We've been looking at Revelation, and I want to share with you a brand new study we're having uh, this uh, morning. And uh, just been piecing this together, and uh, I want to present what we're looking at. Of course, it's kind of a bringing together of uh, what John's been trying to accomplish here, just the opening section of the book of Revelation. And again, uh, what we have in the book of Revelation, and uh, this really keeps me on track and keeps me focused, is, of course, you have the story of God who created Adam God created man for a certain amount of relationship and intimacy and oneness with him and it was a very unique thing in which God created man, man was created in the image of God, in the image and likeness of God he was created which is not necessarily Uh, I believe a physical kind of a thing but rather it is a capacity of oneness and intimacy in a relationship which was unique among God's creation which is just in my mind phenomenal I mean that's incredible that even among the angels see angels aren't created in the image of God man was created in the image of God which is fantastic and of course man fell into sin I want to talk to you about that this morning man fell into sin Adam fell into sin and therefore, the whole deal was lost, or at least broken. And, and of course, God saved that. And what we have in the book of Revelation is, of course, the second Adam, which is Jesus, who the first Adam was before he fell and who he was supposed to be. And he's in oneness and intimacy uh, with God. And so we see in Jesus who we have been called to be and that's who's presented in the book of, uh, in the book of Revelation. And when we, the way we define Jesus, the way we talk about Jesus is not about activities that he does, it's the person that he is. So you gotta hear this. So Christianity is not, it's not about activities. It's about who I am. I don't do the right thing, I am the right person and because I'm the right person, I do the right thing. And those are two totally different things. For example, this is how we talk about this among teens. And there's problems with some of this. Uh, and some of it's my language. But a lot of it you're going you're gonna to remember. Um, we have the whole story and the creation of man. And of course, uh, let's talk about Jeremiah Bullock. That right here, I was born. And of course, I know that God's plan for my life reached way before I was born. Uh, I remember the first time I really began to read the word and, and I read the passage uh, relating to um, the prophet Jeremiah. I mean he says, before you were born I knew you. Hey before you even, hey, before you even conceived uh, and thought by your parents, the idea of you, uh, I appointed you a prophet among the nations. So God was working and before the foundation of the world, I believe this, before the foundation of the world, the thought and expression of Jeremiah Bullock was in his heart and he was pressing and orchestrating and moving and working behind the scenes even before I was born and of course Wesley calls that and you can the theological uh stance of course in terms of this the preserving of the capacity of relationship in which he created me to be in even though I was born in sin he was working on my in my behalf before that moment which is really significant so I was born here out of the grace and wonder and dream of God And from, before that, but even from this point continually, what you have is God is moving and he's shifting. I don't know if you can see this in your own life, but I certainly can see it in mine where God moved and he he pressed and he bit and he worked and preserved my life. And we've got a couple studies that we didn't get to in Revelation where talk about the the creation of time. And there's a lot of time language mentioned uh, in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 1 regarding the Father. And time is significant. God created time, uh, time came about in man's life. Of course, we were born in the eternities. This is an eternity kind of thing. But m- time appeared not as a, uh, an opportunity of death and judgment and punishment, but time was an extension of grace to man. See, if time had never been given to man, a, a, a time to change, a, a time to repent, a, a period of time where he did not have to be who he was eternally, hey, we would have been in trouble. So God was doing that kind of thing in my life and gave me time and buffered circumstances and choices that I make. He, I made. He did not allow those to create the death in my life that they could have, uh, which is, and that's a lot to chew on, but that's really significant for me. But God brought me to a point of salvation. John Wesley called that initial, the first aspect of salvation. Okay, hey, I'm born here, but God brought me to a place of salvation in my life. And it was, it was key to me. At that point, we believe. We stop sinning. We hear this all the time. Well, salvation is where God moves in your life, and he works in your life, and he saves you, and then he brings you to a place where you stop sinning. That's not biblical. Not only not biblical, but John Wesley didn't teach that. See, we stop sinning here. Shake your heads no or yes. I know, on this, least I know where you stand. See, we stop sinning here. I no longer say no to Jesus. I no longer live in rebellion. He is king of my life and I live for him daily and I get in and I'm running after him. But there was something different that God did in my life sometime later. Wesley called that entire sanctification or whole, there was a whole being changed in me and of course it alludes to nature. There's a nature deal which is a sin kind of thing. See, I stopped rebelling here, which is a sin thing. But hey, there's there's a nature, there's an internal drive thing that changes. Something radical, and I believe personally that you don't even start to really grow until that happens. You really don't take off until that happens. And the only way I can describe this is, is this is, hey, yes, I'm going to and I'm living for you. And yes, I love you and I'm going to serve you. But there's an inside something here that changes that I can't do myself. That I can't discipline myself. I'm locked in here. And what Jesus came to save us from is not these, hey, this kind of thing here, but it's this kind of thing here. And actually, you could say this whole deal. But this is a part of that. There's an inward side of me. There's something going on inside of me that he, and we use the word cleanses and eradicates And I don't really care what the language you use, but there's something different in me at this point. Give you an example, this is how we compare it to teens. I see sixth graders who come into the service. They're not bad, they're not evil in, in certain terms, they're, they're not there because they've been dragged in and chained into the chair. They're there because they've been told to be there, they know it's the right thing to be there. They're all of this kind of language. They, they pay attention, they've got their Bibles open, you know, hey, they're, they're where they're, they measure themselves in terms of uh, I'm where I'm supposed to be, you can't discipline them. But you look at them and they're just kind of, you know, and they count the raptors once in a while. And, they try to catch most of what you're saying, and, and they're certainly not stuffing their fingers in their ears. But then you see some other person. Maybe it's an older teen, and I believe it can happen. And I believe it's some adults as well. You see there's a different posture. They're not there because they have to be there or they're supposed to be there. They're there because they can't help but to be there. Those are the same, the same ones. That are here every single morning at 715 and it's freezing and they're kneeling down there and their backs are aching and cracking, and when they bend over, you hear things pop, you wonder if something broke, and just they're here and and, and they're praying for the teens and they've got this internal drive and they're seeing the way he sees, and feel and they're they're passionate about the things that he's passionate about and and, and things that, that, that he longs for, and it's like they're on the same page with God. And see, that's an internal nature kind of thing that we cannot see, I can't You can't manufacture that. There's a hunger there. There's a passion there. There's a longing there. And when that is changed, when God, see, there's a a cleansing and drives happen and longings happen. Then a series of what Wesley called growth in grace happens until I croak. Wesley didn't call it croaking. He called it ultimate sanctification or whatever. But those things happen in my life. And so what I believe. I just believe, just absolutely, I I believe it because I'm experiencing it in my life, that what Jesus came to save us from was not activities, okay? What he came to restore in man was the nature, it was the oneness, it was the intimacy. We've been finding that this week, that God created man. And I've been using this silly diagram. We have Father, we have Son, we have Holy Spirit. That God created man to be in oneness, he's not... See, I found it significant that God did not invite man into His omniscience. He did not invite man into His omnipresence. He did not invite man into His omnipotence. You know, He did not invite man into those kinds of things. He invited man into His nature. He invited man into His heart. He invited man into His oneness. Intimacy. That's where He invited man. Now, as we've heard talked about, it seems like we've settled for less, and there's the getting really close language, but we've settled for this kind of thing, which I draw a circle, which is out here, which I, hey, I don't feel the way he feels, I really don't look at the, I don't look at women the way he looks at them, my entertainment's not his entertainment, the way I deal with my finances are not the way he deals with his finances. But I go to church on Sunday. I'm not a bad guy. I do those things anyway. And even though I don't feel about it, even though I really hate your guts, I'll try to treat you the way he would because I want to be like Jesus. Really. You know. And I don't see the opposite sex the way he does. But, you know, I, I'll try not to act on that impulsively and I'll do my best. And that, see, because I love Jesus and I'm always at church and, I, you know, and that kind of thing. And if we were really honest... I don't know, I know this probably sounds critical. We've all seen people who come to church on Sunday and they've been there every Sunday all their life and they just don't look like him. In fact, I look at my son and say, if I ever look like that, shoot me. (laughs) Tongue-in-cheek language. But um, there's problems with that. So this is not Christianity and biblically we call this sin. Having my own space, having my own nature, having my own thought, having my own desire, having my own passions. And I flip him tokens of justice and, and, and obedience, and I do the right thing, and I say the right thing, and I give him money, and I tell him how great he is, and I worship him. This is a misunderstanding, a gross, heretical viewpoint of who we've been called. And this certainly doesn't, isn't what Wesley talked about. And this may be a new diagram of language, but see, this is the life we've been called to live. And this is nature kind of stuff. That he's invited us into. Passions and longing. You can go to town with that kind of thing. Now, this is what we've been looking at in chapter 1, verses, uh, primarily verses 4 and 5. And we have, of course, uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, we've been looking at some of his function in the, in the redemptive role of man and bringing him into that oneness and intimacy and sourcing him and revealing God. And, of course, uh, that scene in Jesus in verse 5. And then you come into verse, uh, at the end of verse 5, and we begin to deal with this, is that, uh, And so actually, this is not verse 6, excuse me, this is the, uh, verse 5b, um, John just burst, <laughs> and it's really a proper translation, you come to the end of this kind of conclusion, He's just talked about all this in verses 4 and 5 up through 4 and 5a, and then you come down to 4 and 5b, and there's just this burst of praise that comes forth. And he says this, To him who has loved us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us to be a kingdom and priests, to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Behold. And then he comes into this whole uh, uh, coming with the clouds thing. and It's just really fantastic. But he just, in light of what he's been presenting, in light of the whole introduction to what you're about to get to in the book of Revelation, he burst into praise. And there's some significant language here that I want to look at with you regarding uh, just the opening couple words in this praise statement, which are really significant. In fact, I want to look at this part with you, up through the beginning of verse 6, but not entering into verse 6. He says, To him who has loved us, in IV translation, And freed us from our sins by His blood. kind of want to look at that with you. And I want to take it in chunks. uh, chunks. Of of course, he begins with, to Him who loves us. And I want to look at love, which is who He is. And it's not a response to who man is. Meaning that who man is and who man became draws that love out of God. That love has always been there. And that love has always been lavished upon God. So it's not necessarily a response in terms of it comes about. But I want to look at that second. Okay? To him who loves us, we're going to look at that second. I want to look at first with you, who has freed us from our sins. And really we to look at two things. The, f- the idea of freedom and the idea of from. What those two words carry, the pictures they paint. Freedom and from. The word freedom uh, is translated loosed in fact it's used in their culture the same word is used in their culture uh, in terms of when you say to free something for instance if an animal was caught in a trap okay, a leg trap or whatever trap and you came up and you freed them you loosed them from that situation this would be the word you, you use Now, this is significant because see when we're talking about sin here and Adam made this choice okay, he was hey he's enslaved So this this wasn't a kind of thing where, this is the language that describes man's situation. Man had to be freed from his sin. So this wasn't a thing that, hey, Adam, who in the nature and oneness with God, comes over and makes this decision to say, hey, I want to rule myself. I want to make my own choices. And he moves over from a nature of God, which is love, which we're going to come back to, and he moves over to a, a nature of self. And he, once that happens, he can't get out of that. I've often thought of why the whole deal of the cross and Jesus and God and all this kind of mess. Why didn't he just reach over like my dad used to do and give me a brain duster just on top of the head. And, Don't do that. And it's, oh, I'm sorry. Then <laughs> Adam go like hop back in there or something. Uh, that's impossible. Because Adam became enslaved. He became trapped. And someone, hey, someone's going to have to free him. Someone's going to have to loose him from this. We'll talk about that in more in a second. But the first word is freed. The second word that he uses, talking about sin, he's freed from. There are three prepositions that are used uh, consistently in the New Testament, and they're not really of any theological significance, uh, but they can be helpful. And there, there are three of them there's the word in, which is this word, and if you write it in English letters, in which is translated in, which is a a preposition used to describe something that's inside. We are all in the tabernacle. Prepositional phrase is in the tabernacle. Uh, Describe we are in this place. Another preposition is ace. And we translate that in the English into. So in other words, that describes motion. This describes where we are at. This describes motion. If you were walking into the tabernacle, this would be the word you were using. It's described outside moving into, motion kind of language. There's another preposition that's used consistently. It's the word ek. All these are kind of related. And this is out of. Okay, out of. Meaning if I were leaving the, t- uh, the tabernacle. As I was walking out of the tabernacle, Jeremiah came from the tabernacle it's moving from one location to another and this is the word that's used this is the word that's used so when it says that man, and this is so significant in my opinion theologically that we're talking about God freeing man out of sin he does not free man in sin in other words the redemption of man is not like uh, oh well you sinned no big deal you don't have to change and it's kind of like the "I'm uh, the sorry" kind of language. Uh, I preached a revival, or uh, we were in between revivals, and I won't tell you where I was at, but we went to this church, and and the, this pastor preached. And is at a Wesleyan church? And my grandma goes there, and uh, um, I, I, it, it mattered to me because that's a lot of my relatives go there, and this is the guy that's shepherding them. And I don't. Again, it's difficult, and I don't want to knock things. A big church, we're about 400. And he stood up on Sunday morning, is preaching on grace, which can always be dangerous. Sometimes when you hear people talking about grace through the series on grace, and he was talking about how we sin. Okay, that man has the potential for sin, and he's taken some things out of context, uh, out of 1 John. He doesn't mention anything that about chapter three, where if you continue to sin, hey. God, God, Jesus Christ came to destroy the devil's work. Jesus Christ came to take us out of sin, not leave us in sin. And the whole premise of his message was: if you've sinned, hey, God understands if that that's going to happen, and you're going. Everybody does that, and you just need to say you're sorry and apologize, and He'll forgive you. That's not biblical, folks. That is not biblical. There is no forgiveness of sin through saying, I'm sorry. There is only forgiveness of sin through repentance, period. I found this significant. Judas was sorry. You know, out of all the 12 disciples, look this up yourself and look through the Gospels. Peter doesn't even express that in terms of going and and making retribution, expressing sorrow for sins, Biblical. We know that he did somewhere, obviously, because of his heart, as we see in the New Testament or in the book of Acts. But in the Gospels, there's no record of him doing that. The only one who does that out of the 12 disciples is Judas. And Judas runs right back down to the temple. He's weeping. He confesses that what he did was wrong. He says, I've betrayed innocent blood. He even tried to undo what he did. Takes the silver coins and tosses them back into the temple. Says, hey, I'm wrong. I did wrong. He confessed. He was sorry. He still died and went to hell. Why? He did not repent. Because God is not in, I mean, yes, there's a place for talking about being sorrowful. There's a place about restitu- restitution. Jesus talked about that. But forgiveness comes when I repent, which literally means turning from. And I'm not going to think that way anymore. I'm not going to participate that anymore. And Judas did not say, hey, I'm going re- to repent. I'm going to turn from seeing Jesus the way that I've always seen. I'm going to turn from running my own life. I'm going to turn from all the things that Jesus has been calling me to. I'm going to turn from my old life, and I'm going to embrace. That's what, that's what forgiveness of sin comes from. Are you with me? <laughs> I get, get worried. I get the same kind of look sometimes. and it's... This is really significant. He's come to free us from our sin. And John is rejoicing, not free us in our sin. See, I don't believe God overlooks sin. And that's really heavy. But see, I believe believe we can be who God has called us to be. I believe that God has called us to be and, and be reconciled and redeemed. and Indeed, that's what he's going to accomplish. So there is a freedom from our sin, Now, when we say from our sins, again, this is not freedom from activities. This is freedom from nature kind of stuff. And see, there's a really significant uh, aspect of self that I want to share with you. I really, um, you can't, see, you can't quit being selfish. It's part of our nature. Self just leads to self. I mean, there's, uh, in fact, Christianity is a reversal, and that's not even the right language, but it's a reversal, or it's a, see how does self die to self? (laughs) You can't. Because self, the nature of self is self-oriented. It's self, and the only way to get out of self is him. Period. And so we need to be rescued, not from activities, but from our very nature. Let me give you an example of this. When I first got, I use this illustration a lot, but it's good. When we were first married, obviously I was saved. And I believe, um, I feel like Wesley once in a while, who seems like there are times when, yeah, he talks about being strangely warmed. but there's certain, there's certain places back and forth where he, I don't know if he ever comes out and says, yes, you know, kind of thing, where I was entirely sanctified and my nature was, and seems to bounce back and forth, That, at least from my opinion, and some of the things that I've read. I was saved, I was sanctified, I was married, and I was in ministry. And there was an aspect of my life that was self, that was governed by me, that was self-oriented, self-inclined. And it was my temper, it was my anger, it was my control over my, my wife. I was not rebelling against Jesus. I was not, you know, willfully saying, hey, I know how you want me to treat my wife and I'm not going to do it. I wasn't even aware of it to some point. And, um, It came about, God was dealing with me on this and we were in a counseling session. We did premarital counseling obviously and then when I didn't get fixed after marriage we did counseling continually. And we were in this counseling session and my wife says to the counselor, I've only been afraid of two people in my life. She says, my stepdad and my husband. And I was shocked. I was like, you were married before me? Because obviously she's not talking about me. Must be some other husband she had. And I'm really upset about it. And she looked at me and she goes, I'm talking about you. And there was a flood of emotion. I was embarrassed. I was angry. (laughs) All those kinds of things. And I knew this lady. She was a part of our ministry. And and I just, uh, you know, I rejected that. And I said, I've never hit you. And I was like, it was like I was, I felt, you know, like I was being sentenced. I was like, I never touched her. You know, and I knew and all this and, and she says, you've never seen yourself when you're angry. And I said, that's ridiculous. You know. And it wasn't, but just a few weeks later, we were doing this revival out at Point Loma, Nazarene College. And we were there for a few days on campus. And, and uh, they put us up in this beach house down there, right on the lake. And it was gorgeous. We'd spent the whole time there fighting. And uh, it was just uh, you know that whole week we were there. And it was just it was a gorgeous place. And it was in the middle of this one argument that we had, where I turned, and uh, I never realized the posture that I had, and I saw myself in the mirror, and it was just a divine unveiling, Uh, and I looked exactly like my father. That was, that was this kind of thing. That was that kind of thing in me. And I probably would chalk this up, not as an entire sanctification point, but as, yes, I am available. It is a nature. It is a will in me that's willing to be changed and sitting on the edge of my seat. So this is probably a growth in grace moment is how I would chalk that up as. And, but hey, I was, there was a self kind of a, I looked horrible. And she said, see? And I remember leaving and she went down to the lake and I went down to the lake and God did something in me that night, he said, I don't ever want you to look like that again. But I, it's not like you're just to say, oh, OK. Sure, no problem, I can do that. I couldn't do that. Because that was generation after generation after generation after generation. That's the way that I'd survive. That's the way I taught myself. That was inward kind of a thing. And I remember looking at him and saying, I, I not only didn't know it was there, how can I stop that? That's who I am. And I said, you're going to have to change me. Not just, okay, I'll overlook it. That's my husband. I'm different. I'm different now. I'm different, man. I'm no longer that man. And that happened. And see, that, that kind of a thing, that, that progressive kind of a movement in my life that happened in time and time and time and time again and my wife uh, when we was in college she worked at this place and she she uh, our junior and senior year we were married in college and and uh, best roommate ever had (laughs) anyway um you know we were married in college and she worked down at the uh, distribution center and uh, all the ladies that she worked with were like uh uh, you know boy talking about their husbands cheating on them and all that stuff and and the ladies just one of the ladies said, well that's just how men are and corinne goes it's not how my man is and they're like, well, sure it is, you just don't know. Because that's just the nature of man. And see, we're, that, that isn't a kind of thing that you just, well, you overlook that. You don't have to be that way. Now, I could bring that inside the church walls. Oh, well, watch out for that. Pr- well, they're just like that. They don't have to be like that. Well, they're mean and nasty and yell and scream and throw things at the teams and, well... They love Jesus, but, you know, that's just how they are. It's personality. No, it's not. It's sin, man. They don't have to be like that. Because Jesus doesn't throw pots and pans at <laughs> of. He doesn't act like that. He doesn't raise His voice in board meetings and slam His fist on the table and yell and scream at the pastor. That's not what, That's sin. That's sin. And so what Jesus has come... And uh, no wonder John just burst forth into praise... Because there is a, there is a bondage, there is a, there is a place, there is a choice that Adam chose where he is absolutely locked down in that and he cannot get out of that. He can't, there's, it's absolutely impossible. And the miracle, the wonder of salvation is that God has come and says, hey, you don't have to be that way anymore. And he wants to grab man and yink him back in oneness and intimacy with him. And so this is not a salvation in sin. This is a salvation out of sin. Which is beyond activities. It's the very nature and person of who I am. I don't have to see with a self-viewpoint. I don't have to see with a self-inclination anymore. I, I don't, have you ever wondered this? Just, hey, just, you don't have to answer this kind of thing. But have you ever just, have you ever walked down through your world, walked to a Barnes and Nobles and said, Jesus... I would so much just love to be a Christian. Not try to do Christian stuff all the time. But just be a Christian. Back to the duck language kind of thing. Just be that way. Just see the way you see and Feel the way you feel. Evangelism, wouldn't that be something that i do? It would be something that I couldn't keep from doing. See, loving my neighbor wasn't something that I had to put on my to-do list. It's, I can't, I can't help it. Pouring my life out for my wife is not something that I've just got to, well, but it's just that inward, kind of. I'm so caught up into who he is. I mean, have you ever thought about, didn't it just make you just say, yes, 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 yes. Could it be true? That's the salvation that I believe we're talking about. And I believe that's not a heaven thing. I believe that starts here. I believe that starts here. So the first aspect of this whole thing, if you had to sum this up, is that when he says to him who has loved us, and then he says, freed us out of, from, ek freed us out of our sin. See, the whole, the whole business of salvation It was accomplished by Christ is not a God overlooking our sin and we'll always be that way because that's just how man is. No, there is redemption and freedom from that that we don't have to be the way that we've always been. Now, this is swallowed up in, there's actually two things. To him who has freed us from our sin is one part, but he also says to him who has, what he says is, loved us. Which again, this is the nature of God thing. I want to uh, have you turn back a few pages to 1st John. It's literally just a few pages. 1st John chapter 4. And it's not by chance that the book of 1st John begins with God, with John saying, listen, God is light and in Him there's no darkness at all, none, okay? If we claim to have fellowship with Him, that's this kind of language. We claim to live in light. And yet we live in darkness, which is where God is not. We're liars. And do not live by the truth. Hey, God is light and in there's no darkness. And he says, you're not to sin. Hey, you're not to live out of yourself. You're not to, you're not to live in rebellion. See, sin was not where God intended Adam to be. Okay? You're not to sin. He says, if, someone, if you do sin, hey, if you do sin, we have Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who's going to intercede on our behalf. But don't continue to sin. And he moves through that whole thing down to that chapter 3 where he finally says in chapter 3 verse 4 everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has ever seen him or known him. He's really strong on that. So he moves down talking about not just activities but this sin position nature kind of a thing. And he comes down and he boils that all down. He brings that down to the point of love, which is where we're headed. It's kind of like it's all over the Bible what we're talking about. But he talks about God being love. Not in terms of an action, but the very ne- essence of who he is. He says in chapter 4, we're going to look at a piece of this. In verse 7, he says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. That's really significant. Love only comes from God. Without God, there is no possibility of love. And, and I think evidence of prevenient grace would be, or an example of prevenient grace, would even be ungodly care and concern about other people. Even an ungodly, immoral person who hates God and hates Christ and doesn't want to, even he has some ability. See, he has some evidence. He has some brooding presence of God in his life that enables him to show some type of care and concern. Which means he's not totally lost over to self. Does that make sense? He's not totally swollen up in that yet. That's because the grace of God has moved in his life. There is no love outside of God. There is no love outside of God because love comes from God. So this is a message, uh, I'm sorry. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Verse 9. And this is how God showed us, uh, showed us, showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in, in us. And he goes down, and of course it's the uh, very famous John 4, 16, God is love passage. Okay, so hey, God in his very nature, in his very essence, God is love. Now there's a couple different Greek words for love that are consistent in the New Testament. One is the Greek word um, in English, uh, Phileo, and the other one is, of course, agape. And phileo, a couple examples of that are in John, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, the Father loves the Son. Every time in the entire New Testament and Old Testament, Hebrew translated into Greek, the 70, the Septuagint, every time in that Greek Bible, when it talks about God-loving man, or even God-loving Jesus, every single time it is agape love. Every single time, because that's who He is. But in the New Testament, there are two places. One with Jesus and one with us, both in the Gospel of John. One in chapter 5, verse 20, and the other in chapter 16, verse 29. John sixteen twenty-nine, where God phileos us. And the root word of phileo is phile, which is where we get our word friend. Which describes friendship love. Or brotherly love. It's, it's, it's alluded to in the Old Testament by the relationship that God had with Moses in terms of Moses was a friend of God. So when Jesus says God loves the Son, however you want to translate phileo in John chapter 5 verse 20, it is, it's an affinity, it's a, it's scholars tell us phileo is a highly emotional love. In other words, God looks at us as Christians, as sons. He kind of looks at us and goes, ah, kind of the way I looked at my son yesterday up here when he was embarrassing me. And, and, uh, you know, only two and a half. Hey, if he was three, I'm sure he would have stood there like the other kids did. It was very proper. But he's never been in that position before, so we've got to cut him some slack. But uh, (laughs) I look at him, and I called my mom about it last night. and She says, you should have seen you in your church programs, you know. And um, there's something I look at that, that boy, and he's just, oh, it's just something in my heart and, and how he is in the morning. He, he doesn't wake up he doesn't wake up like uh, other people in our family, who are not morning people. They're not here this morning. Uh, but he, he woke up this morning, and the first thing that happens on his face is a big smile. I walk in this morning about 8.30 and he wakes up and he gives me this big smile and then he falls back asleep and half asleep and that just, ugh. I look at that guy and it's, I'm filled with emotion, it's just, I love him and there's a place for that kind of love there's a place for that kind of relationship that God wants to have with us but that's not the love that he's talking about here in terms of who he is God in terms of who he is is not an emotional kind of a we get that consistently, he's not an emotional kind of a being in terms of who he is, he is a covenant agape, is a covenant willful commitment decision kind of driven by love. It's his who, who in other words, it's his very nature. When he saw man, Adam, and the decision that he made, literally who he was demanded, it, it literally dictated the very insides of his nature, says, We've got to do something about this. It was not an an emotional kind of thing. It says, we can't let this happen. And I I believe, personally, that in the New Testament there were certain terms that once they were used inside the church walls took on a different kind of a meaning. Uh, You and I know that we have certain language we use in the church is the same language outside of the church. We know that marriage inside the church, English word marriage, is not defined the same as it is outside the church. We know that, right? Marriage inside the church is not what marriage outside the church is. Same term, when it's brought inside the church walls, we understand it differently and more uniquely. In biblical times, agape, outside of the Christian community, had a Greek definition. If you look it up in a Greek dictionary, it had a meaning. But I believe when you grab that term and you brought it within the church walls, it had a different understanding and a different meaning. And when you take agape and you bring it into the New Testament, The kind of love that we're describing with agape is this kind of love. So God sees man in his his position. He sees man in his circumstance. And he's literally grabbed by his insides and he says, we cannot let this happen. We've got to free them from where they're at. Because they are locked down and in bondage and they cannot get out. And the prevenient grace of God went before and moved in the salvation of man. And this is all comes out of John's bursting forth of praise. He says Revelation chapter 1 verse 5b To him who has loved us last thing we're almost done. He says to him who has loved us and freed us from our sins, out of our sins. And then he gives us the agent. This is what was so significant. You have the love of God, who He is, that demands, hey, we've got to do something about man. We've got to do something about who He has become. He is trapped. He is, he is literally entered into a place of darkness and damnation. Hey, He cannot save Himself. He can't get out of the thing that He's got into. He can't get out of the pit that He's jumped into. We've got to do something. And of course, God says, how are we going to do it? Now, this is from, you probably got this figured out, but this is from a Marine Corps perspective. He says, we're going to free him, and the last part of the statement says, by his blood. And actually, the preposition by is not the word by, it's the word in, which is the first one, in. It's literally the whole redemptive uh, possibility of man is literally within the locale of in his blood, which is a statement of the cross. It's by the cross that we are saved. Really significant. Uh, As a young Christian, reading the Bible for the first time, A lot of the things that I read I found hard to believe. Because it was so backwards from the way that I'd always thought. For instance, whoever wants to save his life must lose it. Um, When I began to read through the Gospels for the first time, it was just, you have the Matthew chapter 8 passages and all the chapter eights right after the feeding or it's right after the the sermon on the mount jesus goes out and he's got every kind of authority that you can imagine i wrote some of these down uh we won't read through them but i mean he goes through and there's the cleansing of the leper and there's the calming of the storm uh, there is the para- the paralyzed person there's the dead girl that's been raised there's the blind and the mute person there's the there's all these—I mean—he just goes through and just wham, wham—power and authority. Demons are shrieking. I mean, just—I mean—he is just phenomenal. And yet, you come to the end of the, the end of his life, and he's this weak, frail person hanging on a cross and dying. And he talks about that as his glorification—that I'm going to conquer. And you're thinking, you aren't conquered, man. You aren't conquering. You're conquered. And yet, when you go back into the Old Testament, and we won't, well, for time's sake, we won't go through these, but that was consistent of, how, of, of the way that God conquered. It was always opposite or backward to man's thinking. And, and of course, you're familiar with the Judges passage and the whole Gideon story, which is one of my favorites in, Gideon, uh, or in Judges, I think it's chapter 7. Yeah, verses 1 through 18. And you got 20,000 men that Gideon summoned to go to war. And God narrows them down to 300 brave, not too smart guys. And of course, you got Jehoshaphat and the calling of the army, and he puts all the musicians first, and they come charging in. <laughs> it's, come on. How, how is that? See, I, I, I see God, who's going to free man of his sin, coming down, walking up to Satan, and <laughs> pumbling the guy. Just bells and whistles and might and conquer. But that's not the story. See, how he saved man is God, in the cross, literally, identified with and came to where man was entered into his world and suffered the full consequence of Adam's choice in order to grab him and all of the mess of who he is and bring him right back into intimacy and relationship with him and so the beginning half of this just bursting into praise is what, what John is bursting into praise is about is that we don't have to be the way that we've always been that we don't have to cope. That I, li, my anger situation. See, you cannot look in the book of Matthew when, when a guy just is is just just wrought with anger. Jesus never says, well, count to ten. That helps. Yep, count to ten. Hold your breath. Well, I'm struggling with my bodily drives and my sex drive. Did you tried cold showers. That really helps. Oh, yeah. That's not, that's not the, you see how we settle for There's hope. I can be changed. John says, yes. I want that. We love you this morning, Jesus. And we do. There's not enough praise. There's not enough ecstatic glorification. I used to hear of generations that would get up and run the aisles. I think that's what's taking place in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5b. To him who has loved us, and has freed us out of who we have always been by your blood what you accomplished I want that in my life Jesus and I accept everything that you've done for me in the cross bring me into who you want me to be wash me as white as snow make me a kingdom and priest to serve you change not just my activities but I give you the opportunity to change the way that I think, Jesus. I give you the confines of my thought life. I give you the inner motivations and desires of my heart. My daydreaming as I'm driving down the road. Just stop right in the middle of that, Jesus. I would like to daydream about the things that you daydream about. My thought, my my whole, uh, my humor, Jesus. I I, I invite you to transform my humor so that I would laugh at the things that you would laugh at the things that would offend you, that they would offend me. I don't want any area of my life untouched by you. Come and free me from who I've always been. Change the things that I cannot change. Redeem the things that I cannot redeem. Make me the right person. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.